Do you or someone you know have a message to share with our local community? Then please visit cjroradio.com and contact us through our website. And now, what you're about to listen to is the first part of a long-form interview with a local who shares their thoughts and feelings about our community and the place they call home. My name is uh, Brennan Ostring. I'm running for the PPC in the uh, riding of Glengarry Prescott Russell. I'm a 43-year-old father of four. Um, I work at uh, Rolls-Royce Canada. I'm a blue-collar worker. I rebuild jet engines. I, I'm also a welder. I do a lot of mechanical construction stuff. So uh, I like working with my hands. And yeah, I've coached hockey. I've uh, been involved with a lot of sports with my kids over the last uh, 10 years since we've been in the community. And uh, just... Uh, I see an opportunity here to try to get involved and make a change and need uh, now more than ever, I think is the time for, uh, for good people and uh, people, people to serve people, right? We've gone past the point of allowing the um, political establishment to, to run people's lives. And now I think it, it's time to return, uh, you know, a government to, to the people, right? So kind of where I stand. <laughs> okay. And what does that look like for you? What does it look like? Um, well, um, it means more people that are, are used to working with their hands, more people that are, are connected to communities. You know, I see a lot of, uh, a lot of situations, uh, where, you know, if you j just take a drive through small town, Ontario, uh, small town anywhere, Canada, US, I'm sure it's happening all over the place, but I know my reference is small town Ontario. You see churches uh, falling apart, uh, being closed down. You see legions falling apart and being closed down. And um, there's a symbology there I find uh, with the current state of our of our society and, ho and how it seems to be falling further and further from any kind of... Uh, um, moral position of integrity or, or just a, just a, a position where we have some kind of base to say, okay, this is where we're going to draw the line or this is where we're going to stop. You know, we're, we're going to hold a specific, you know, it's like when you're raising a child, right? You raise a child inside a set of boundaries, right? You let them bounce off those walls, but you set those boundaries for a reason, right? So that they learn to grow up secure inside those boundaries. And, and I think that society needs a similar fashion and uh whether you want to use christianity or not uh it, it tends to be a good base and i find uh we're, we're there's been so many decades where we've pushed away from christianity and and the god's law if you will and now what you see happening especially when you deal with anybody on the left they're, they're always talking about intolerance and love and peace and the need for for all of these aspects yet they're very very adamant about christianity and god not being in the picture and and pushing that kind of section of society to the side but everything that they preach is is all all that christianity preaches too right so i find it a little interesting in the that dichotomy you know that exists between between the two you know so, so there's two things that you mentioned that I want to touch upon there yeah. so there's seeing the the symbolic gathering places of of joint power and community and culture mm -hmm. degrading from your eyes and also the conversation about uh denying god but also 
but by doing so also denying what God represents through the Christian lens. So going back to the, the buildings, uh, I, I do notice. You know what I mean. I, I do yeah. notice that. I do notice that yeah. like the, even community centers sometimes yeah. feel a bit ghosted. Yeah. And it's kind of understandable with you know the pandemic, everything being shut down and is one element, but I definitely have noticed that there has been a changing. And I feel as though uh, churches symbolize when religion was the primary powerful gathering force yeah. within a culture. Yeah. And then the legions that connects to the military, you know, when we had world war, world yeah. wars and everything like that, like that was the next big global experience that humanity undertook and created a joint culture. And now I find it's possibly hospitals and, and academic institutions are probably where that transition is taking place next, where the big and beautiful common gathering places are campuses and or hospitals. Um, that's that. That's what I kind of see as where the transition is taking place. Okay, good point. Yeah, and that the, and that that moral capacity, that these places represent, uh, are, I guess the closest thing I could think of would be, would be science in theory, but there is always an argument as to whether that's true or not, and then, touching back upon. Uh, the the second point, if you if you remember where uh, you were talking about about the the crumbling infrastructure or about the uh, um, <laughs> yeah well, we both lost it we both lost it <laughs> I drew a blank on that one too <laughs> yes it was a very good point the seeing things change around you and these these symbolic places becoming dilapidated and um. I'm sure it'll come back to us. <laughs> yeah. But if, if there's something that that resonates with you with what I'm talking about in the No, I, I I I I think you're right on that and you know, I'm not opposed to a shift. Mm -hmm. I'm opposed to God. Uh, yes, is that what you were getting yes. at? Okay. The control structure of religion. Is that mm -hmm. where you were going with that? When people say no more God, but then they're also trying to push for the same things that what God represents for you, right? right. So there's some type of hypocrisy the full, the at full play. Yeah, yeah, the full circle, right? That they they want to they want to deem Christ, uh, demonize Christianity for being misogynistic and 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 you know there's a whole variety of terms that they use to to denounce Christianity. Um, Have when, you personally experienced this? No, because I've never been like an outward Christian. I think this whole um, uh, pandemic has uh, kind of solidified my Christianity. It drew me. It it made me more comfortable with with who I am and, and I think where I need to go. Um, it caused me to start talking to God more, but I was always a spiritual person. I mean, my mom had a, a retirement home when I was growing up and I used to take the, the older ladies to church and stuff like that. I've always had a relationship, but not my dad's side is very, very strong Christians. They come, my dad comes from a strong Christian family, although he's not never, never took shape in, in my immediate family. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I see, I, I see that change happening and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay with change. I, I've got no problem with change. I, I have a problem with change when, when, um, change has to happen just for the sake of change. When they say everything just has to change, you know, and you, you, you can't, you're against any kind of any form of change. You're not, you're not progressive. You know, you, you can never be progressive enough because everything always has to change. So, um, that's where I have a problem. Like not, everything doesn't always have to change. 
some things are good. Some things need to change for sure, you know, but there's, there's some institutes that are, are, are sound. And, um, you know, I think, uh, Christianity has been misunderstood and I think the church doesn't always represent Christianity. Right. So I think the church has been, um, uh, rightfully so demonized for its own faults. Uh, but, uh, it doesn't mean that, that the gathering of people and, and the belief in Christianity, um, has to be demonized. And I think if you understand the true teaching of, uh, of the Bible, that it's not, it, it's not misogynistic or, or, or derogatory in any way to say that men and women are different, but for some reason today it is right. <laughs> like, you know, they, they want, and, and this is again, more of the push from the left that, you know, everything has to be homogenized, right? Like we all have to be the same. We all have to be equal. You know, the, the equal, well, you said you listened to Peterson. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the equality of outcome, right? So it's, it's, it's just, I mean, some people are stronger than others. Some people are smarter than others, you know, like some people are faster. Some people are taller and shorter. Like why do you want to homogenize society? You know, mm-hmm. like that's what makes us uh, interesting and diverse and, you know, and the sense going back to the other points, the sense of community too, right? The small town, along with the crumbling infrastructures uh, that you see in the in in the smaller communities, with like you said, the the rec centers and whatnot, but in the churches, but that sense of community is also leaving us too. And I find the the more that that sense of community goes, um, the more we're somehow losing our humanity, right? There's there's less connection between us. And I think that it's vitally important. And I'd like to see some kind of, um, uh, revitalization program brought into this country for small towns, you know, bringing jobs back to these small towns that used to flourish, right? Those towns that created communities that sent kids out to the cities that, that were the hubs for innovation and, and, you know, that, that community spirit, right? You know, the hot, the, all the, the big hockey players and a lot of the, um, you know, the, the historical, uh, Canadian figures. I, I mean, you listen to a lot of them, they all came from small towns, right? Like it was all this whole country and even the States though, it's much bigger than us. It's that, that, that connection to small towns and small town living, you know, and again, you, you, it doesn't always have to stay the same, but not everything has to change. Right. And you see these small towns have been decimated with, uh, you know, free trade agreements and the shipping jobs overseas. And, uh, you know, none of this stuff has been beneficial for, for Canadians and it's, you know, it's taken money out of our pocket. It's, uh, it's forced, um, it's, it's forced a lot of, uh, a lot of poverty, a lot of, uh, destruction of these small communities, a lot of drug abuse and a lot of, uh, you know, marital issues and stuff like that. I mean, just, just to touch on a few, but I mean, there's other problems other than that. Right. But I mean, you know, you can see a trend here when you start to remove an economic structure from a region and people start to get more poor, like uh, more impoverished and, you know, you, you just, like we said, you, you drive around uh, small town uh, Ontario and you can see it, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. there's more poverty in small towns than there is in a city, right? So. Yeah. There's, there, there's a lot yeah. in what you've said. There's a lot <laughs> yeah. in what you said. Yeah. And I want to definitely let you be able to talk and share everything that you're, you're thinking and you're feeling. Am I going too diverse? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's not, there's no, you can't say anything wrong, right? You know, it's, it's just you expressing yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm, so some things that came up my mind when you're talking was uh some of the the pushing against christianity 
getting angry at it for not speaking out and challenging their own approaches to the, the pedophile cases, as an example. Yeah. And I personally, and I know there's like obviously my own biases at play, yeah. Definitely heard a lot of people making those arguments and defaming the church and pushing against it and just pointing the finger at it and saying there's a lot of things wrong with that institution and to not trust that institution. And then you also have the situation of the residential schools, yeah. again, connected to the, the church and those institutions and finger pointing and all that kind of stuff. And it made me think about when 9-11 happened and how there was a lot of finger pointing towards Islam and to Muslims. And now, and, and there's also, there's some other examples as well that came to mind, but it, that was, that was earlier in the conversation. But the, the point is that now we're at a point where society is saying, okay, well, not all Muslims are bad. There are some good Muslims. And we look at the situation in Afghanistan and people's hearts are breaking, seeing that we're pulling out and relieving this, this territory. Whereas before... No one really cared, mm-hmm. and they just wanted to see people hurt and pay for what happened. And with the church, I think you might even see something like that t- take place based upon what you're saying, you know, that there's a sense of community and the spirituality and connection. It's like, yes, there are some bad apples. There are some bad situations. Police was the other situation yes. that I was thinking of. Yes. There is a lot of pe- uh, police that are having their uh, finger pointed at them and being blamed, and the institution can't be trustworthy because it's not coming out and chastising these members of their community in a way that would make those who are hurt and oppressed feel that justice has been served. Right. So this, this pattern happens in different areas of our society, our culture, and our lives. And eventually, I find the pendulum does swing back in a certain way, where for a while we've been chastising religion. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we start to see right. the value in it and we start to right. say, okay, not all priests are pedophiles and there's a space for this within our society and with our culture and connecting to the economic boom that was happening before globalization. You know, all these small towns were having industries. So people had meaning, they had purpose, they had a sustainable way of living. And then globalization happens and it's less expensive for that to be done. Whatever is being done in some other country where people are being paid less money or there's a war taking place, so people are willing to take less money, whatever it may be, yeah. and and shipping costs and just bulk and everything like that and being close to certain, whatever it may be. But it's seen as this opportunity through the globalist perspective. And I don't mean globalist as like an organization. Yeah. I mean as a movement. As of, an economic movement. As an economic movement that there's, <gasps> there's great me. benefit because, hey, we get more stuff and it costs less and people over there are getting an opportunity that you guys used to have. But in that transition, there isn't something filling the void. You know, it's not saying, yay, it's great that you get this stuff for, you get more stuff and you get less for it or you pay less for it. But we're, I never really heard anything addressing the meaning leaving that community or they're just never did. Yeah. It's just like, okay, well just move someplace else, do something else. Exactly. Yeah. They just expect people to uproot and move. Um, change their existence instead of, you know, um, I, I, again, the, the change just because you need to adapt instead of saying, you know, well, let's try to help you stay where you are and let's bring other jobs back. But what they've done is they hooked us on cheap, right? So now we're importing stuff that we don't need. 
we're consuming stuff that we don't need. It's causing, you know, there, there's huge environmental issues as a result of this. Uh, again, I, I bring it back to the, to the left, but the, the left says, you know, I mean, we're, they, they bring it down. They, they bring it back in a way, um, that, that, uh, you know, says that North America, the Western nations, uh, we were responsible because of the industrial revolution for, for, you know, the, the massive amount of climate change that we see happening and, and the destruction to the environment. But I mean, when you look at the, the, the number of, of people that were alive at, at the time of the industrial revolution and the amount of emissions that were, were put off versus what's going on today. I mean, it's not even comparable. Like to say that, you know, China with a, a billion and a half people, uh, allowing them to have their industrial revolution, uh, is somehow comparable to the, to the States and or the Western democracies when we had our industrial revolution. I mean, you're talking about a minute amount of, of people compared to what, what is existing in, in a, a country like China today. And we know the minute, because we've got such strict environmental regulations here, maybe too strict, um, for some industries because it's hard for people to get anything done. Right. Um, whether it be construction or, or anything like that, there's so many environmental assessments and, and the process is very, heavily weighted with regulation. So, um, when, when, when we ship out jobs from North America and we ship them over to China and then we turn around and re-import this stuff, um, to make certain people a little more money or to make things a little cheaper, well, the global emissions go up, you know, and, and, and China and India and these other countries are, are always seem to have an exemption from these, these climate accords, right. That allows them to continue to pollute. And, you know, when you look at a country like China, they they were allowed, whether they were allowed or whether it was manufactured, however it happened, but you took jobs from North America. They were not necessarily North America, but the Western democracies. You took jobs that were um, innovated by Western democracies, you know, because there were people from all stripes that came and, and, you know, there was Irish and Italians and, you know, there was lots of immigration before this, right? So North America or the, the Western democracies are not a, a specific uh, um, cultural, uh, you know, they're not, they're, they're a, a multicultural society from, from way back when, right? Um, but when you, when you take these jobs and, and this innovation and you put it over into Ch a place like China and then you um, are allowing the Chinese government to steal this intellectual property and then turn around and start building this stuff and selling it back to us. And then you're telling us here that we're too expensive and we have to compete with, with you know, Chinese imports when it was these corporations that in order to make more profits or whatever they were after, you know, um, that we somehow now have to reduce our wages in order to be competitive or, or work harder or, you know, what, whatever the, the talking point of the day is. Yeah. And it's, it, it gets tiresome, you know, it gets real tiresome. And the fact that these emissions go up when, when we start to ship our jobs over to China, because they don't have the same in, environmental regulations. It, it, and we saw this effect throughout the pandemic, right? We can't get stuff things a well we can't even get workers today but you know we we can't get materials right now and we're we're a resource based economy i mean we're, we've got massive amounts of resources here so we should not be in this position and i just see that our governments have sold us out and and allowed the corporations to sell us out for so long and it's 
you know, it's high time we have, um, we have some equalization come back to the playing field, right? And as you mentioned with the pendulum before, that that's a problem that I have is because the pendulum is never, there's never a, a balanced ground. The pendulum always goes from one extreme to the other. You have one group that's that's tranquil and docile and they allow things to happen and they get pushed to a point, you know, because the pendulum has swung so far and then they start to push back and then the other side loses power and the pendulum swings back. But I was speaking with a gentleman today and I told him a country, especially a country like Canada, the States, regardless of whether you're on the right or the left, you have to govern from the center. You can only govern from the center because if you don't, you're always going to have massive, uh, a, a fairly hefty portion of the population that, that is always up in arms about something, right? You know, whether it be abortion or, you know, uh, on the left there, or, you know, Christianity and faith on the right or pro-life on the right. And, you know, you can go through a whole spectrum of, of issues, but it's, it's always the same. And, you know, the vaccine issue today, you know, like we, we have to, we have to govern from the center. I believe you have to govern from a position of, um, of, uh, live and live and let live, you know, just let people live their lives. As long as you're not committing a crime, you're not affecting other people, you know, let people be, let the free market work, reduce regulations, let things flow as they would. You know, if, if, if it's the natural progression of the, um, of the free market to, to ship jobs to China, let it happen, let the cycles happen. But to me, it's not a natural cycle. It's, this is all manufactured, right? It's all, it was all drafted on a, on a, some, somebody's, uh, you know, graft in a, in a boardroom who said, how can we maximize profits? And, you know, that's why you see when you've got, uh, uprising in, in uprisings in China with, with people wanting, uh, better wages there. So then it costs corporations more money. So then they ship it to Vietnam or they ship it to some other country, you know, and the bottom line is about more and more money. Right. And we saw that happen this year with, with Bezos and, you know, all these corporations that, that, you know, raked in massive amounts of profit while our, our small businesses went under you know, to, to it, just that, and these small businesses are, are, are the backbone of our economy. So why is Walmart allowed to be open, you know, with two, 300 people or Costco, and you can't have 10 people in a small mom and pop shop uh, bakery, you know, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. So I know there was a lot in there. Yeah, no, we kind of right. we went off, but yeah, with the, the total irony in regards to things being moved to China, you know, they're, <laughs> The argument of they're they're stealing intellectual property, and it's like <laughs> they're huge. They're huge. Like yeah. the idea of enforcing any type of rule or regulation, they have complete veto power. Like unless we're going to go to nuclear war about the patents over zippers or something like that. Like yeah, it's we don't have that much bargaining power with them. And for me, what's the most? I think we do. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think a lot of people won't like me saying this because you know there was such a an anti-Trump movement, but I mean, Trump did it. Right. No matter no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, Trump brought China to their knees. How so? Right? He did it. He did it through uh, tariffs. Right. He's, he even did it to Canada. Right. He even brought I had guys at work because I work in Montreal. You know, they were cursing up and down. Oh, you know, Trump this Trump that, you know, he's I, and, I, and all I said to them was, well, wouldn't it be nice if we had a, you know, a prime minister who stood up for Canada the way that Trump is standing up for the U.S.? like him or, or, or not. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not saying either way. I'm just saying, you know, call him crass, call him, you know, whatever you want, but he stood up for his country. 
you know? Yeah, I guess I guess for me, I find... Sure, I was probably talking a little extreme when I was saying that there's no way to negotiate. I'm sure there is. There's yeah. got, there has to be a way to negotiate. Well, we control the resources. They don't have any resources, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They've got very few resources, which is why they want the South China Sea, right? That's where there's a lot of oil there, you know? Yeah, and... and- Taiwan, the chips, you know, they, they want this, right? They're, they're, they were trying to put uh, a military uh, forces up in the north, right? They wanted that gold mine up in the north, you know? And Trudeau would have sold it to them had, had there not been the pushback. Even, even the intelligence community had to come out and say, oh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a national security issue, right? Mm-hmm. So. I find tariffs to be, it, tariffs is in ways economic warfare. Like it's, and it's, it's a short solution in many regards. Yep. At the end of the day, I, I think the, the long-term solution is co- collaboration, cooperation over a greater goal and a greater purpose. And I find it kind of interesting how China has taken the technology and the information and the ideas of we need to take care of our environment, which were being screamed about in Western culture, and they are superseding us in infrastructure development and upgrading their grid and turning their power clean and and trying to... Because they don't have the regulations, right? So they can just go, you know, and they use that. They use that to their advantage for sure. Well, they're making the change... Well, I guess, how do you define regulations? Because I would imagine that the, the... the government in China, whatever they say goes, and that's the regulations. 100%, right. So if they say, build that bridge and have it done within it within a month, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to get it done. Here, you're talking about environmental assessment upon environmental assessment. If you've got a fish that's, you know, only found in that region and it, you know, it basically lies around in the mud all day, you know, mm-hmm. and I know environmentalists still get up in arms. Trust me, I'm, I'm not somebody who wants to destroy the environment. I, I'm not that kind of person at all. I've actually been... And I was growing up a traditional environmentalist, right? Not not a, a tree hugger, but I mean, I was, I used to get mad when my, my friends would throw stuff out the window. I, I would always, you know, bark at them and say, come on, like, what are you doing? You know, this is trash our, out the window yeah, while you're driving. Man, yeah. like, this is our environment. We got to live here, you know, mm-hmm. but um, no, China, I mean, e- even Trudeau himself has made the comment on s- several occasions that he admires China because they can turn their economy on a dime, right? They have the ability to do that with an authoritarian capitalist structure, right? Whereas we're so bogged down by regulations at all levels. I mean, look at that. I don't know if you follow the the cement plant in uh, Lorniel that they're trying to build, right? This mm. has been, I think the, I'm not sure exactly when they, they initially filed, but I, I, I heard somewhere it's been in, in process for about 10 years yeah. to develop this plant. And there's a lot of pushback, right? for it and and rightfully so because a lot of people's land are you know will be affected because of the proximity of the the plant um but where do you juggle i mean a company wants to come in and invest x number of dollars and and promises to uh, bring in 200 jobs at 30 plus dollars an hour i mean they still have to adhere to the government's environmental regulations it's it's not like they're just going to come in and start spewing stuff everywhere right so i i think we need a balance and i'm not sure where that balance is Mm -hmm. but there isn't any balance there's just polarization and and it stops us from getting anything done whereas a country like china being authoritarian you know they they just get it done they just do it Mm -hmm. there's no there's no regard there's no regard for the life or you know anything 
They have also the luxury of when they do decide to get something done that other people have kind of tested out the things that they're applying and working on. Like when they go yep. and they install solar panels everywhere or transition to an electrical grid, they're not inventing these things. They're just implementing what what's other, already been done. What's already been done. Yeah. And, and to a certain degree, that the power that China has is kind of their political will in that regards. Like the the issue of businesses moving elsewhere and then communities dying, I feel that also kind of connects to the feeling of political will, that when you have this institution, this organization that was the central point of meaning and gathering and conversations and culture within a certain society, and then it just ups and goes, there's this huge existential crisis that can take place. And then the culture and the community of that place has to kind of start from scratch. And if, and but we also live in a very mobile world, so people can either check out by just existing mainly online, or they can just get up and go to a city or to another place. And so you have a like almost a leadership drain that can take place, yeah, as well at the same time. I think that issue blends into um, immigration too, because you hear a lot of people on the other side of immigration that's that you know will tell you through and through that, you know, stop taking the talent out of certain countries. And uh, you mentioned Afghanistan earlier. There's a perfect example, right? Like um, people are up in arms about what happened and, and rightfully so. I mean, it was a, it was a, a horrible, uh, a horrible event that took place. But I mean, if, if after 20 years and what, 2 trillion or some odd dollars worth of, of um, taxpayer dollars that went into Afghanistan and the army fell like that because the Taliban came in and everybody just said, Oh, okay, well, we're going to switch. If you don't want to fight for your country, if you don't want to fight for something, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You got to stand and fight for something. I mean, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And people today are, are, are pushing back because we're, we're standing and fighting for something, right? The Americans did it. I mean, whether you go through uh, their their civil war, I mean, lots of countries have, or or, or the, the the war of independence, whatever whatever it, it be, you know, many 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 places. Sorry, <laughs> shaking the table. That's all right. <laughs> um, many many places have uh, have gone through these these uh, periods of turmoil, mm-hmm. where where they've gone through their growing pains and their development and stuff like that, uh, you know, to to help mold them as, as a country, um, or as a nation or, you know, whatever it is, a Republic. And, um, so there comes a point where you got to fight for something, but people get tired too. Right. And when you're constantly pulling the rug out from somebody and they just learn how to stand again, and then you pull the rug out again, whether it be through regulation or through removing jobs or, you know, the constant carrot in front of your face, like, this past year and a half of the, of the pandemic, you know, the, the goalposts just keep moving and just keep moving and just keep moving. And you wear people down, right? You wear people down, but you also, you have a sect of society that says, yeah, but now I've had enough. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and if you don't want things to get, uh, you know, to a point where nobody wants them to get to, then, you know, we have to have some, some dialogue and we have to be able to work through those problems but again, we come back to the left controlling everything and they censor everything. They, they don't, you know, they, they know that the, that the, um, po- the political opinions on the, le- on the right are very popular. 
they're always typically the more popular content, which is why they feel the need to censor it, right? Because these ideas of small government, lower taxation, they, they resonate with people, right? But the, when the left controls everything, it makes it hard to, to to try to fight through that, you know? I mean, all of the big billionaires, they're, they're all leftists. They support leftist ideas. You know, they, they're, they're all about grabbing more and more votes, uh, keeping, keeping themselves in, in a position of power. And it's, it, it gets disheartening for a lot of people. And I think that's why you see such a turmoil in, in, in our, in the Western societies today, because we've reached that breaking point, you know, where we've, we've sat back for so many, I mean, I remember when I was a kid listening to your parents and your grandparents, well, we don't talk about politics, but you know, oh, these guys are so corrupt, you know, they're always lining their own pockets and yeah, I mean, it, it happened 40 years ago and 50 years ago and, you know, and it's still happening today, but because it has never been put in check today, I think it's out of control. And now we're at a, we're at a crossroads where we're looking down, you know, what kind of country we really want, you know, and if you let it continue down this road, we're not going to recognize this country and that's the problem, right? But the minute you decide to push back against the left and their control grid, then you're considered an extremist, right? Or, you know, some manufactured name, whether it be a homophobe or, a, you know, a, a misogynist or, you know, I mean, there's never a shortage of terms that they use to, to describe people on the right, you know, and it, but I think the movement from the right comes from a really organic standpoint because it's, it's not really not to say that the right isn't, isn't violent and doesn't have its, 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 uh, its history with, with, uh, extremist activities, but typically it's, it's not what we see today, right? They make it out as though that's the case, but it's, it's, it's far from the case. I think more of the extremism is happening from the left than, than the right today. Right. And do you feel like you've been exposed to this extremism in person or has it been mainly through media and online? Yeah. Um, media, media and, uh, and online for sure. But, um, not that I've experienced it directly, but I'm starting to see it. It's rolling through my, my 19 year old who's going to school. Um, he received, uh, a letter the other day, um, from the uh, program coordinator of the, the school he's uh, planning to attend. And um, it was the first time I've seen somebody who uh, preferred to be called by, by pronouns. And I, I just, you know, I have a whole, I have a, I have a, a whole set of issues with, with this personal choice. And, and, and this kind of ties back into, into religion and getting away from, from a specific set of truths, right? Versus constructing whatever truth you want, right? Living your own life and living life outside of the the boundaries of of any kind of restrictions, you know? Just do you. And um that may be good in the short term, but uh I don't believe the the long-term effects of that. Uh, and I mean you can you can see it. Just look around. I mean our society isn't getting better. <laughs> it's getting worse and it's exponentially getting worse, right? In terms of selfishness, in terms of, um, you know, lack of community, in terms of, uh, you know, social interaction. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and, and COVID was just another nail in the coffin of keeping people in their basement and, 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 
helping to uh, to further segregate people from that that human to human interaction. And I think it's a very dangerous trend, and it needs to be reversed. I, I don't think that anybody under eighteen should even be allowed to have a cell phone. I think it's a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous invention, honestly. So, with the cell phone, I I can understand the argument of uh, there's the benefit of being able to reach somebody in in a moment like, hey, I forgot this. Can you pick this up? Or I'm in trouble. Can you come and pick me up? I need help. And being able to communicate to anybody almost on a moment's notice. And then there's the whole yeah. internet access, access to information apps, yeah. uh, constant streaming that that element. Yeah, I feel like. I grew. I was able to <laughs> go from phones attached to the wall to uh, phones in my pocket to them always being in my hands and seeing that whole transition of the difference between you're the last link. Aren't yeah, you? <laughs> yeah. Texting and calling versus the whole multimedia complex that is now our phones. That is yeah. this wonderful contraption of everything that we've ever thought of put into one thing. Right. And I personally have been taking more steps away from social media, just kind of doing that as an experiment. And it's, it's this weird, confusing experience because social media and online and all that kind of stuff represents being connected, represents being in the know, uh, being accepted by other people because you're being exposed by the same things that you think they're being exposed to as well. And but it's false. Yeah. <laughs> it's 100% false. Yeah. And, and, and it's all a, it's all an illusion of, of, of whatever somebody wants to project. Right. So, I mean, you could spend 90% of your time in your basement crying and 10% of, of your time taking selfies and, and dressing yourself up in front of a mirror, you know, and you're, you're presenting a falsified you. Right. So uh, we need to be more real. We need to go back to more community <laughs> mm-hmm. to use that small town reference. Right. Yeah. And, and it's all, it's all tied together, my man. It's, a, it's absolutely all tied together. And I believe, you know, again, I'm not saying that absolutely you must be a Christian and you, you must obey God. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm also a, a person who doesn't believe that the government should be interfering in people's lives. So I think that it's important to draw the distinction, but I think it's also important that people note and realize the further we get away from those moral guidelines that Christianity set out for us, the worse things get, not better. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can tie that together however you want, but nobody can deny that things are getting worse and exponentially. So they're, things are not getting better. Mm-hmm. Personal contact, selfishness, um, our, our, our patriotism. I mean, I come from a, I'm 43, not that old, but I mean, we had a small town movie theater in in my hometown growing up and we, they always played the anthem and we would stand for the anthem, the Lord's prayer in school. I would love to see the Lord's prayer in school. I, I, you know, this is Canada. I want people to say Merry Christmas, not happy holidays. You know what I mean? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, it doesn't mean you're forcing anything on anybody. You're just saying, you know, everybody else is entitled to their culture, except North America, right? North America has to adapt to everybody else and accept everybody else, which, which is fine. I have, I have no problem with that, but at the peril of our own culture, you know, we'll step on our, uh, we'll step on each other 
and and we'll push aside our own culture and say it doesn't matter. You know, you don't you don't need to stand for the anthem. You don't need to to say the Lord's prayer. It doesn't matter. You know, because it may offend somebody from another country, right? Because their perspective is different. Well, that's fine. I have no problem with you having a different perspective, right? But we also have a culture. And, uh, you know, if you want to come here for a better life, we want you here and we want you to come here and have a better life. And, and there's, we want you to integrate and, 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 and be able to raise families and, and experience that same community, right? This is not an, an ethnic thing. You know, it's not a racist thing. It's because we would welcome anybody into these small communities because it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. It's a mentality, right? It's it's an uh, an idealism, and when you bring people into that that sense of community, right, life is just so much better. Life is better with the community barbecues and the community baseball games, and when you know people and you have the tailgate barbecues or the the beer after the game with each other, you know, it's that's life. And we are getting so far away from this that I'm worried we're going to lose our humanity altogether, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm getting the feeling that the Christianity represents a sense of spiritual connection and community for you. And I can very clearly remember my young angsty atheist days where I totally would have been on that other side being like, yeah, like get the Lord's prayer out of everything yeah. and secularize everything. And we don't need these big institutions. We don't need these big overarching narratives and now that I'm a bit older and I'm not as angsty and I've been exploring more elements of spirituality and religion and trying to see the good in them, see yeah. like why have they existed and been resilient for so many 100%. years before we ever had any modernity. These were the pillars that kept us from ruin in many, in many, many, many capacities right. and helped people get through ruin in many, many capacities. The power of prayer is pretty amazing, eh? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. When, you're, when you're down and out and, uh, you know, you just, you don't know where you're going. You don't know what step to take. You don't know what decision to make. I mean, even if it's not prayer, even if it's, you know, a meditation. But to sit back and, and to take deep breaths and sink your, your breathing with your heart rate and, and control your yourself, right? And really get a sense of who you are. Everything becomes easier. It doesn't mean that it's going to always be easy, but you know, it, you, you develop a, a sense of understanding of, of who you are and where your limitations are. And, you know, can I try this? I'm not good at it, but look, I mean, I'll give you an example with this. I mean, um, I took a, a, I, I took a jump and I, and I, I started coaching hockey and I was nervous about it. I didn't know, you know, what to do. I hadn't done it before. And then I did it for three years and it got better. And the last year, the year of the pandemic, I coached a midget team, uh, and my son's bantam team. And it was a fantastic year. We had great, pro- I, I had, uh, 16, 17, 18 year olds coming out for Sunday morning practice and we would get 12 out of 16, 17 kids just unheard of, you know, the kids wouldn't get up that morning. I'd bring donuts. We, we had a great time. We had great structured practices. We worked hard. We had a great team. The kids bonded that year. It was like when I grew up playing hockey and, um, but I was afraid to do it. 
but I took that jump. And I, and I believe if you push yourself out of that comfort zone, too many people stay in their comfort zone, right? And when you stay in that comfort zone, you don't grow. And I'm trying to tell my kids this because uh, this whole situation has brought about a lot of anxiety for my 19-year-old. And he's he's suffering from this. And I'm trying to tell him that you have to push yourself, right? It's not easy to push yourself out of that comfort zone. But if you don't, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. If you, if you don't know how in life to break out of your comfort zone and do something and risk failing and risk putting yourself in front of people and failing, then... Um, you have to learn how to be laughed at. You have to learn to stand because most of your life you're going to be laughed at, right? You're going to stand up and you're going to make a fool of yourself and people are going to laugh at you and you're going to say, "Ah, you know what? Either I take myself seriously and I'm going to regress and go into my basement and never, never risk anything again, you know, and ironically, again, we see this with COVID. Nobody wants to risk anything. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like there was never a virus ever in the history of mankind, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, there's been deadly viruses, right? And what all of a sudden we're a modern civilization with an advanced healthcare system and we have to lock our population down because we can't deal with a virus. And after a year and a half, the governments have not developed any new strategy other than the lockdown. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, you've got to, you got to break out of that comfort zone. Eh? Definitely. You really have to. <laughs> yeah. It's very important to learn and to grow into, because at some point in time, you're going to be forced to do it. And if you don't have that resilience, it could break you. And it's so much harder to yeah. come back from that point. And when even you- this is, I, I'm learning from this too, because, uh, I got up in front of the, uh, the, the rally at the museum the other night and, um, I didn't want to speak in front of the people because I've been doing a lot of this campaigning. I, I've got a good team with me. Um, people that came out of the woodwork to help me and, 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 and help build my, my campaign, uh, with me. Uh, but we're doing a lot of the, like we're, me and my wife are building the signs in my garage during the day. And at night we're going out and putting them out and we're banging them in and a lot of physical work. And it's a big geographical region, right? Oh, yeah. So we're out till like 12, one o'clock. And then I'm coming home and sending emails till three. I'm working two jobs. I'm, you know, I'm a blue collar worker. I, I'm raising a family of four and it, it's, it's been tough. And I was really, really tired. The other night, I didn't want to get up. I knew because I didn't have the energy inside me to to motivate that crowd the way that it needed needed mm. to be motivated, and it was a flop. Like I, I felt it was like it, I I embarrassed myself, you know. And but I did it. I just got up and I I did it. And I you know I didn't want to, and I it, there was no energy on my part. I I was dead tired. But uh, um, I'm learning through this process too. Uh, that I'm going to, how to approach this and how to break out of that shell because I don't like talking in front of large groups. Four, five, six, ten people, no problem. We sit around and have a conversation. I'm okay. Once you start getting like 30, 40, 50 people, I start to draw blanks about what I want to say and I, I get really nervous and I have to push myself out of this comfort zone because if this is what I'm heading for, then it's a whole new way of life. Right. So I, you know, I said that to a few people today, I've got to start pushing myself out of that, out of that comfort zone in order to, uh, to be able to speak in front of these people. So it's still at 43, you know, you're still learning those lessons, right? Oh yeah. (laughs) Speaking in front of people and especially about ideas that are challenging during challenging times is not going to be easy. (laughs) No, no. And, uh, my buddies, uh, they make fun of me a little bit because, uh, I wrote a really good hockey speech when I was, I don't know, 10 years old, 
nine years old, something like that, maybe a little younger in public school. And I had this really good at, you know, when we used to do the, the, the speaking contests and then you would, you would win and you'd go on to the next, uh, you'd speak in front of the school and then mm-hmm. they'd send you off to the, to the regionals or whatever. And, uh, I wrote a really good hockey speech and I got up to, to deliver it in front of the school. My mom was there <laughs> and I looked and I looked around at the full auditorium and I freaked out and I ran to my mom crying and I jumped in her arms and I was like, mom, I can't do this. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah. So I, I have a lot of friends cause I've been fortunate that, um, a lot of the guys I grew up with, there's about five of us that I still talk to almost on a daily basis. Guys that I've known since we were, we little minions yeah and uh it's been special having them with me through this journey so and and my my best friend his name is mike both our moms are named sue and we were both born on october 11th oh there you go <laughs> yeah, <so> it's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah it's good it's good what was your mother's reaction when you went running to her uh she just embraced me. My mom always embraced me. That's beautiful. Yeah, my mom. My mom was uh, was a rock growing up because I had a, a rough upbringing. So uh, my parents went through a bad divorce for a long time, and uh, there was a lot of alcohol involved and stuff. So uh, you know, um, yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough. So not as tough as other people. You know, easier than some people. Well, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to you minimize know, your no, own experience. Just, right it now. was it was it was a challenging period. But yeah. um I often say to my wife now that uh it's funny how um this period of time and and the fight that we're in now, it's almost as though God was preparing me by by uh, battle hardening me throughout the years to be able to stand up to this. And I mean, even when I had my kids, I was still, when the kids were young, we had four young kids and we had, you know, there was a time where we had three kids in diapers. And I mean, it was, it was tough. Like that's, that's not easy, right? No, that's not easy at <laughs> no, all. No. And, uh, I didn't always deal with it. Well, you know, from a, from a stress standpoint, I'm a very, you know, I, 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 uh, I don't always deal with stress well, you know, so it's been a cha- lifelong challenge for me. Um, but again, the closer I get to spirituality and, and to that connection and the more I pray for strength and, and help and guidance, um, the easier, uh, or, or the more tools seem to come to me to be able to deal with it. So it's, uh, again, it's just one more nail in the coffin that reassures me that I'm on that, that right path. Right. So I can totally see the the similarities, you know, of seeing your family being torn apart and their conflict taking place and what is a government but supposed to be the representation of the big family and hey that's interesting i never yeah, yeah that's a good and it's tearing and it's divide, dividing us and it, it it is scary in many ways i do have hope i i do believe that we have this capacity to find ways to relate and connect with each other especially as things get increasingly dire right you know when i was and I totally relate to that feeling of where is this replacement? You know, when I was going through school myself uh, and hearing people say, okay, we can't do this and you can't say that because it's going to offend or challenge these people or anybody, and like anybody in the class, my, my instant argument was, okay, why do I have to give something up for somebody else? Oh, because this and this reason. Okay, why then don't we all come together under something new 
that we all agree upon. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't it just be we all let go of our old things and we all take something new on together that has enough space for all of us? And that was just too challenging and demanding for a lot of people to take on that responsibility and to be creative in those moments of stress. Right. And as a kid, it just didn't make any sense to me. Now I have a little bit more empathy and understand like, oh yeah, that is a very challenging task for someone to take on those nuances. But ultimately we have to, you know, because when you presented those ideas, Mm -hmm. did it not, I I don't know if it said to you or maybe you were too young, um, but in hindsight now, um, does it not say to you uh, or or show you a a picture of of today's world and how, um, when you're dealing with one side versus the other and they're telling you, you always have to change. Mm-hmm. But when you tell the other side, mm-hmm. you guys need to change too. Mm-hmm. There's a complete lack of willingness to accommodate or to, to, to toe the line. It's always coming from one side. You, you know what I mean? The way I Do would you find that or the way I would, I connect to that and, and see that now is in moments. So when somebody is saying, Hey, I, I don't feel safe to somebody else because of what's happening. Can you please change so I can feel safe? Right. They're already in a stress response. And then the person who's being asked is kind of on their back step in like the perfect scenario. Like, okay, I'm being, I'm being asked to change. It's, it's never really easy for people to change. To keep somebody in their comfort zone. To keep something. And then they want to stay in their own comfort zone. So they try to negotiate with the person. And the negotiation is, can we step into the unknown together? Right. But if that person already does not feel safe at the get go, that is like cognitively for yeah. the human mind is extremely challenging because they're literally on a different nervous system. Like, and that's what all of society is creating today, right? Yeah. That bedrock for that nervous system uh, that, that, you know, encapsulates people in that, that reference point and they don't, now people can't adapt. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're stuck in that. And society's reinforcing that. It's bringing in those tools, everything in the education system. It's all reinforcing those tools. Don't risk anything. Don't mm-hmm. go out of your comfort zone. Yes, and I, I, I would love for you to share a story with me if you have any in regards to your kids and where they felt unsafe, but you as the adult in the room, as the person who has lived more and has wisdom and has information to, ch- to share and has a greater sense of perception, can then ensure your kid that they're, n- they're not in danger and to give them the opportunity to be courageous and to challenge their preconceptions. Cause that's what I felt I was asking of adults in the room when I was young of like, why can't you guys be the courageous ones and tell them and show them how they're actually not in danger because of what I'm doing. Right. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not putting them in danger. You know, my motivation is to make them feel scared. They're scared. I accept that they're scared. I accept that something I did reminded them of something they went through, but that's not what we're going through right now. Unless I, I'm wrong. And most, no. most of the- it's funny how my generation was free, like free beyond free. Like, I mean, I would leave even when I was a young boy. I mean, I used to ride over to the pool to do swimming lessons on my own. I'd, I'd leave my house in the morning. My mom wouldn't see me till night, you know, late at night. We, we, we'd be cliff, you know, climbing the cliffs and jumping off waterfalls. I mean, we lived, you know, and, uh, but we're the same generation that then gave rise to, well, we were the helicopter generation, right? So all of our kids are like, 
you know, where, where he just, and I'm, I was, I am so guilty of that with my oldest. I was so, I didn't want him to go with any of his relatives. I didn't, you know, I was so nervous about, about anything. And, um, and I, there's a stark contrast between there's my 19 year old. And then there's my other three. Cause my other three, I was like, you know what? Not just go because Hawksbury is a bit of a, uh, you know, it's not the same, even in my hometown. I wouldn't let my kids do that today because the, it, it's changed. There's no sense of community anymore. Before you knew everybody. My dad was a chiropractor in my hometown and I knew absolutely everybody. I used to go into the bank and I used to do their books when I was like 12 and 13. You know, I do their deposit slips and stuff like that. My dad would give me all of that, those responsibilities, my mom. And, uh, you know, you'd walk in, oh, hey, Brennan, I'd go into the IDA in town and they knew me. I'd go into the hair salon, you know, and it would be, I would just be like, bill it to my dad, you know, like that sense of community doesn't exist today. So even in my hometown, it's a smaller town. It's more like a, like a castle than a, um, it, um, it doesn't have the same community, uh, atmosphere that it once did, but Hawkesbury is different because, and, and you're right on the main route between two major cities, right? So, you know, with the, the increase in, in sex trafficking and stuff like that, there's more, and, and you know, there's often, scenarios uh, you know on on a yearly basis where you have vans driving around and there's reports of you know people uh, being accosted or whatnot so um you, th- there is a certain uh, justifiable response you know with with being a, a concerned parent um just letting your kid run at all hours of the night like I used to when I was a kid but uh because of the, the changing times, um, it's not so, uh, it's not so acceptable today. Right. And more parents are, are helicopter parents maybe because of that. Um, so, but you can see the stark contrast between my 19 year old is very opposed to risk, very like sits in his basement. I'm always telling him, go, go have fun. Like he reads the Bible. He's, he's converting to Catholicism. I, I, I'm trying to tell him not to, I, I just want him to, to take it easy and, and, and to live a bit and go see a few other churches and see what he wants to do. But he's very, very structured. I mean, he's 19 years old. He goes to the gym, he goes to work and he's in bed at like nine 30 at night. I'm like, Holy cow, go live. You know, where my other three are like, let's go, let's live, you know? So, but I was different with them. I saw early enough, uh, the damage I was causing in, in my parenting and my behavioral structure towards my, my oldest. And I said, man, I, but it took me a long time to break out of that cycle. Like it was really, you know, to fight with myself, to break out of that parental structure, that, that, that regimented, uh, or, or helicopter, uh, structure of parenting that, that I could see was not good, but I wasn't only fighting him, I was fighting myself too. Right. So it, it, it was, well, you're trying to work on him. You're trying to work on your relationship, your relationship with your wife and my own personal, you know, ability to, and you're, you know, it's your firstborn. So you don't really, there's no book on how to be a parent. Right. So I made a lot of mistakes. And, uh, I made a lot of mistakes with all my kids, but I, you know, we made a lot of really good decisions because my kids are fantastic kids. They're very polite everywhere they go. And I don't worry about them. Um, they're aside from my oldest one, they're, they're not risk averse. I mean, my 15 year old, he worked two jobs all summer, (laughs) you know? So he was working like 
50 hours, 60 hours a week. So he's very like driven, gung-ho, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, he loves to go out with his friends, wants to buy a dirt bike and willing to, you know, if you drive through a drive through with, with my 15 year old, he's pulling his card out to pay. You know, he's really, uh, he's a cool kid. <laughs> he's a cool kid. So for, for the, going back to that sense of community and how religion has been that avenue for you and has been that bedrock for peace and, and motivation, resiliency, for people who are immigrating here, it can be extremely challenging, like an unbelievable sure. identity crisis of yeah. not only having to leave the system that they wanted to call home and then showing up someplace very different how do you feel that Christianity or your approach just in general can create space for them to feel like they're a member of community, even if they have a completely different background? Well, I think too, when you look around the world with the, the mass migration that's going on, um, a lot of it doing due to, uh, to wars and, and foreign government foreign policy. Um, I, I never understood why, we didn't try to protect people. You know, if you're going to send your military into a place, then why wouldn't you protect the people, keep them there and let them build a civilization in, instead of trying to go in and impose nation building on them. Like the Americans did in Afghanistan for 20 years, $2 trillion. And it fell like that. Like, I mean, people, how many generations of families were involved in those conflicts and those tours, Canadians, Americans, Brits, you know, I mean, you're talking about a lot of invested interest into helping a country turn around. And on a dime, you had a, a country that didn't want to fight for itself. And then you had, um, you created a mass migration problem, right? With people that, like you said, either some, sometimes people don't want to integrate into another culture, right? They're just scooped up because of, you know, uh, war or famine or whatever the case may be. Right. So how, how do, how do we deal with that? Um, if, if we're going to use our military, then send our militaries in protect communities and allow these communities to build and, and, and flourish on their own inside a protected barrier, allow these people to stay in their own areas. Right. I'm not saying like control it like a camp. I'm just saying, you know, use our military as, as, as a, a moderate police force, you know, to, to, uh, keep some kind of peace like you saw happening in Afghanistan. And it wasn't until the soldiers left, you know, that everything fell apart like that. So perhaps there's other ways to, to look at it. Not, not if people want to come here and they want to, they want to, uh, learn about another culture or live in another area of the world, then I, I have absolutely no problem with that come on over and um, we definitely need to figure out better ways to, to integrate people because when you, when you bring people over and you just allow people to settle within communities, you get massive influx uh, of, of refugees or uh, immigration into specific areas, right? Like cities, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, you know, we, we need to allow these people to get out to the communities to the small communities and, and, and integrate. I know there's a lot more opposition in smaller communities, especially the, the further north you go or the further away from the cities you go, 
um, you know, there's, there's more issues there, obviously. Um, but then a lot of the locals, like, uh, I, I'll just give you an example that growing up in my hometown, we've got a lot of, uh, lakes and beautiful river systems and stuff. Um, and they were always really, they were, they were dirty, but they weren't, you know, they weren't filthy. Right. And, uh, we had a lot of beautiful swimming holes that were really, really well kept. And we would go there, um, all the time growing up swimming as groups we'd go out we'd have parties there you know you'd, you'd, you'd bring your little barbecue stuff and you'd clean up when you left there wouldn't be a mess right now uh these areas have been so um publicized uh in the media uh, as as great places and tourist places to, to visit in in small rural areas we've had it, such an influx of people come to this area uh this one particular area um that they were forced um uh, because the amount of garbage that was coming and, and people just, you know, the, the more people come out from the city, the more the environment is, is affected. Right. And the more people come out, um, the more you see, they leave their garbage behind. Um, there was massive amounts of garbage thrown into the, the woods, dirty diapers. It wouldn't even matter. They brought in big dumpsters and it was still piled everywhere. So, there's a fundamental respect that has to happen. And I know in Max Bernier's uh, platform, there's a, with his immigration policy, there's a, a section about um, um, giving people a course on, on Canadian values. And some people may look at that as, as a racist approach or, uh, you know, discriminatory against a specific group of people. But, you know, when you're, I don't think it's racist or, or discriminatory to say that if you're raised in a country that maybe doesn't have sanitation systems or uh, you're not used to the same culture, then maybe it is okay to, you know, give people a, a lesson as to how we do things over here. You know, that there's, there's modern day stuff that we, you know, we have garbage pickup every, every week, you know, you put your garbage out on this day, you put your recycling out on this day, you separate your trash, separate your plastic, you know, not all countries do that. So does that make it wrong? Does that make it racist to, to want to, you know, inform people about the way that we live and, and, and help people adapt to that instead of having to deal with the after effects of, of saying now, because that, that swim hole that I was referring to, it's closed down. Now they're paying security guards 24 hours a day and they've gated the whole thing up. So we can't even use it. Even the locals can't use it. They were, there were cars parked and we're talking about it. This is in the country, like oh, yeah. in the country. And there were cars parked in front of people's driveways and in people's driveways and the city folk were coming down. And it's, it's an intrusion on, on, the rural way of life, right? But again, it's, you know, the the city folk think that, or the elites that, that run the show think that, well, everything has to change. So you guys just have to adapt. Well, maybe adapting is okay, but we don't have to change everything, right? Like this change for the sake of change is not, change for, to say, this this is not good. We can see the effects of it. It's 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 not working. So we need to make a change. I don't think you're going to get anybody that that's going to disagree with that. But when you come in and you see people living a certain way of life, if it's not harming anybody, but because of your idealistic belief that you think that you just want to come in and change that attitude. Well, 
we're going to have some problems, you know, because not everybody wants to change. And I think you just need to leave some people alone. Again, we go back to live and let live, you know, like, I'm not going to bother you. Don't bother me. I'm not a lawbreaker. I'm not, you know, out smashing buildings or spray painting graffiti or, you know, beating up people. That's, you know, uh, a law abiding citizen, you know, even, even when you get pulled over for doing 10 over, you know, it's like, you go to court, the, the judge says, well, the, the, the police officer has his discretion. You know, he can give you a ticket or he cannot give you a ticket, but it's become so militant today that they're going to give you a ticket. But what happened in the days of old when the police used to walk the street? We used to know all the police. We used to know them by name. They'd come to your house. Hey, officer, my mom would call officer Bruins, you know, he, you know, Brennan, Brennan's uh, misbehaving again, officer. <laughs> can you come in? Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you'd, you'd hear the knock on the door. Mom, who's that? Oh, go see Brennan. <laughs> oh, Officer Bruins, uh, what are you doing here? Well, Brennan, your mom called me. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know, like what happened to, to correcting behavior through positive influence and and proactiveness instead of you know this militant uh, approach that we've we've come to to live with today, right? Mm-hmm. I don't... Yeah, the the watering hole story is really interesting to me because. There's sports and then there's nature as the easiest go-tos I could think of that could help people develop a sense of community and connect with each other. You know, you connect with nature and you connect with other people. You, you don't really see yourself as a member of a group or a tribe as much when you're out in nature. And you, you are a group and a tribe in sports for sure. But in that there's like rules and structures and there's supposed to be that kind of like leave it, you know, I'm trying to think of the right word, the sportsmanship. Yeah, yeah some some element of camaraderie yeah. and healthy competition they and, take a bad hit or something or a, an elbow during the game but after you shake hands and you leave it on the ice or mm-hmm, whatever right mm-hmm. and the but the the sports element winter makes it very challenging for a lot of the sports that are more like known in the warmer climates and where people tend to have conflicts and and come over here so the sports that we have don't transition as easily it's a bit more of a challenge and also where sports are usually more expensive because it's very gear oriented. Yeah. So there's also that hur- hurdle to overcome. Uh, hopefully maybe there's some like new winter sports that are less gear intensive that can be innovated and created as time passes. So that way people have an easier thing to connect with. Like I see sometimes during the summer, certain games that are new now, like spike ball or pickleball or whatever it may be that's, that's happening. Yeah. That's allowing people to get together and, and just collaborate with each yeah. other. But back to the nature thing, really interesting because you have, you have all these people in the city who go and see the value of nature and wanting to be out there, but the sheer number of them goes and destroys the very thing that they're going out to experience. And then the people of that community no longer can experience that for themselves. Right. So that's where good management needs to come into play. Reinforced animosity, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you get, especially in the rural communities, then you get that attitude where, you know, Oh, the foreigners are coming down again, you know, mm-hmm. invading our town. And, and, and then it comes across as, as a, with, with a racist overtone. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I assure you that it's not always meant in that way, but the fact that it's always usually specific cultures that are coming down and creating the, 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 the mess, then it reinforces those stereotypes, right. Or that, that, that perspective, you know, especially in the, in the smaller towns, you know, where, Again, you know, culturally, maybe you're from an area that, you know, is used to throwing your trash out the backyard or who knows, right? I mean, yeah. I've I've been stuck to Canada, the U.S. and a, and a few Central American, the South, uh, 
you know, um, uh, Pacific uh, islands, right? Uh, mm -hmm. In my travels, right? I've never been to a lot of other countries, but uh, um, you can you can see it, you know, you can see it. So, yeah, when I lived in the city, there's there's garbage almost any like garbage cans almost anywhere. So if you have garbage, there's an easy opportunity, an easy way to get rid of it. And like even the buses that you go on sometimes have a garbage pail on them. So when you're out in nature or out in a smaller community, you don't know where those accesses are. You can't easily spot an opportunity. There's also... There's lots of signs up though, eh? Like don't litter, you know, keep your garbage, collect it, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, and it's not always, it, it's not always just city, city folk coming down. I mean, there's lots of, you know, small town guys that'll throw a bag of garbage mm -hmm. out the window of a truck. Right. I mean, it's not by any means limited, uh, to, to a culture or, or just city folk. But, uh, I think the vast majority of it comes from people that are coming from the city and, and people that may be from, from other parts of the world, you know, that don't necessarily um, or haven't been raised in the same environment as, as the Western uh, structure. And I mean, as far as, you know, from, from the moment I, I remember any kind of cognitive reality, I, there was always garbage pickup, <laughs> you know, there was some mm -hmm. consistent norms that were just there, you know what I mean? And if you don't have those, well, then it's, maybe it's not a big deal to grab a diaper and throw it in the woods, you know? Yeah. I'm not condemning them, but I'm saying that, you know, it, it creates the problem that people are trying to solve. You know what I mean? I could also see there being conflict with people who have the, the feeling of, I need to protect my community. hundred percent. And then that being painted. That's tribal, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. But that's what you would need in that situation with the watering hole. Like that's a great story that I keep going back to because it highlights just this innate thing that happens, you know, like if a huge number of people, whoever they may be flood into this opportunity, into this resource. And then as a consequence, it's just destroyed and no one gets yeah. to enjoy it. That's a tragedy. It is. And yeah. that's something that can be avoided. There's how do you avoid it? Uh, where I've seen it being avoided is there's yeah. some type of registration system. So you, you have to sign up to be able to access whatever it is you're going to because okay. that resource has been claimed by the community or by an organization like it, and that uh, the members of the community have first access. And we're, we're, I think they were trying to implement something like that. A while ago they did have um, where they had a booth set up with guards mm -hmm. and you had to pay to get in. And, and w there's a lot of people that like that approach and want to see that approach again. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and you have people, you pay people to go around and, and, you know, make sure that the trash is, is picked up and, you know, I, I, I don't foresee a problem with that. I think that's, that's a, uh, a logical alternative. Um, but you don't have a lot of parking spaces like this is, again, this is on a rural road, yeah. just a little, you know, kind of, uh, left-hand turn off the main road and then another little concession off. So yeah. it's not like it's a well-known place, right? Until they, they posted it through like tourism Ontario one day. And then they, they showed this place up in the city as one of the, you know, the good places to come and, and visit. And well, ever since then it's been downhill, right? Pricing has got to be aggressive in that case, right? Like if it makes me think of certain cities where they want to bring down the amount of people that are just driving in the city, 
and they tried so many things and the thing that has worked so far the best, and that's not to say it's going to be the only solution, but the solution that has worked the best so far was that people would register their license plate and on certain days they were allowed to drive for free within the city. On other days they had to pay a fee if they want to drive into the city on the, on those times. And anybody who isn't a member of the city has to pay irregardless to, to go on the roads. And if you're going during peak hours and you haven't registered and it's not your time, you pay a surcharge premium. Do we not already pay through our taxes enough though? Well, this is to mitigate the amount of congestion that's taking place. And, and I totally get It's kind of like the watering yeah. whole situation. Right, so they would they would price it and structure it in a way that locals would pay the least, if and they would have days that they could go and not have to be charged or right. pay anything. Right, like there was just so many people in this that small kind of like city. The English model there, eh? Where it uh, in England there they, they there's a heavy toll to get into the to the downtown core and yep. certain areas are very restricted to to traffic and yeah, you know. Um, and that does yeah. that does still create some type of separation. Like yeah. anybody who can visit the watering holeness analogy would have to be. I do have a I I, I do have a problem fundamentally with 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 that idea. Just be just for the simple fact that I'm really against more and more government intrusion. And the the problem. I mean, we have so many problems today that we have to try to work through as a as a species. Um, but when you when you start throwing more government intervention at it, you create bigger bureaucracies and more problems, and bigger bureaucracies to solve those and more problems. And it, you know, I, like I'm a fan of just roll tolls. Tolls um, don't tax us. Just the roll tolls, the road tolls. <laughs> you drive up to a to a you know a, a gated area or like a checkpoint, and you throw your your loony in, and you drive for another so many uh, hundred miles or 50 miles or whatever. Right. Um, but that money doesn't go to a bureaucracy. It goes right to the uh, ministry of transport. Right. So they've got their operating budget, right. It's not funneling through a huge bureau bureaucratic uh, structure, right. Uh, which only serves to inflate itself, you know? Um, it, and again, then, then you've got the government basically, you know, picking favorites and saying, well, you can drive here and you can't drive here. Well, you can drive here, but it's going to cost you more to drive here, you know? And we all know we've got a problem with too many vehicles and, um, there's, uh, the vehicles are getting bigger, right? Um, I think we could have solved a lot of these problems a long time ago. You see the stop and go vehicles that they got now. Like to me, it's a useless, useless technology. It creates way more wear and tear. It's going to cost people more money to in, in mechanical uh, maintenance uh, due to the wear and tear on these, these start stop and start uh, technology vehicles. When um, we've had the technology for ages that all of our vehicles on the road, commuting vehicles, could have been hybrid. We could have already had our emissions cut from the 90s, well below 90s emission levels, just by going everything hybrid. I mean, we've got the cleanest internal combustion engines today. The, the, the technology is unbelievable, right? You put a small little 1.4 or 1.2 liter uh, turbocharged, a little three cylinder or something like that connected to a battery system. You're going to get close to a thousand uh, kilometers in, in range between battery and charge. You know, I mean, the, 
the, the solutions are there, but the more you turn those solutions over to the government, the more they get conflated, the more the bureaucracies grow, the more the taxation grows and, and the less, um, tangible results you see, you know, that's, that's why I have a problem with government intervention and roll toll road tolls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no problem saying that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the, the ideas around the watering hole, it could be, it could be a private industry as well. It could be the community makes it a community space. It could be a larger government force. Like it, whoever is managing and organizing around those right. resources, it's almost interchangeable. Right. I am curious to have a better understanding as to your position on government because it, like, ironically enough, you're running for government, but you also view government as how you're describing it as the problem. So I'm sure there's obviously more nuance and context. So, yeah. Um, anything specific or any just area like, specifically like or you just whatever comes up in you, you know, like what, what does the government represent for you right now? And what's your relationship with the government? I've always been, uh, I've always pushed back against the government growing up. I was never really a fan of, of government structures or authority for that matter. I mean, there was, I've always had a healthy dislike for authority. I'm not an anarchist by, by, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I'm a law abiding citizen. I I don't, uh, you know, I don't go out of my way to, to injure or maim or, you know, I don't drive drunk. I don't, you know, it's not like I'm squealing my tires at two in the morning, you know, so, um, I believe I, I have existed and I've lived my life inside of a structural framework that's, you know, um, representative of, a, of a free society and, and in a free society, it, 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 it requires personal responsibility. So you have to take responsibility for yourself. The minute you stop taking responsibility, you need government to come in and fill the void to regulate things. And I, I completely disagree with that. You know, we need more outreach programs to make people understand more education. You know, the firearms issue, you know, what a, what a, what a debacle the government has, has created with, with, uh, firearms over the years. I'm going to the long gun registry to Trudeau's gun grab. You jump through hoops. I just got my pal with my restricted actually, uh, last year and, uh, you jump through hoops to get these, the certification is, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's very stringent in this country. And I tell you, it's not legal gun owners that are out there creating the problem, right? It's gangs, it's illegal guns, and you're not going to solve that problem by confiscating guns from legal gun owners. It's just not going to happen. The, the stats back it up. Everything backs it up. It's not, you know, it's another government manufactured problem, right? Uh, and, and then they turn the cheek to the real problem. They focus on something that, that is going to gain them political points, you know, while ignoring the real problem. Tip, typically, it's it's a indicative of, of government policy through and through, right? Ignore the problem, focus on something that's just going to gain you the, the support and the votes. Right? So w- where I'm feeling a bit confused about government is because I remember the Harper government being more pro-gun than the, the current government that we have right now. So I, oh yeah, so oh, yeah. So when you use the term government, I view it as not just the liberal. Single, yeah, yeah. I see it as this this office that different persuasions move in and out of. Yeah, right. So I I I think does the the idea of um, liberal or left p- positions on gun ownership resonate a bit better? Um, versus 
more conservative or right positions on guns? Well, the liberals are are definitely pandering to a a base, right? And and looking for that support, um, using law abiding gun owners as as the crux, you know, to say, excuse me, we've got a problem, we've got a problem with guns, but it's just not the case. Absolutely not the case. You're not going to go through the kind of hurdles you have to to own a weapon in this country to transport a weapon, and then go out and you know create havoc or, or or be involved in some kind of criminal activity with a firearm it's 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 very i don't have the stats but i know it's a very very small percentage of the, of, of the overall crimes that are committed are, are, are legal gun owners um the liberal you know the, i i don't even see the current liberal government as a liberal government because the the, the classic ideology of of, of liberalism doesn't exist it's it's if you want to uh you're liberal of the 90s and the 80s you're looking at Aaron O'Toole that's 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 your classic liberal like he's not a conservative at all and that's why he's losing his base right so before you go into that I just want to jump real quick back onto the the gun thing because I was remembering about just thinking about okay what have been the biggest gun tragedies that I can think of that I've been exposed to so far within Canada and usually the Dawson College mm mm-hmm it, um, the ma- the the massacre that just happened uh, in in Nova Scotia was, I think, the worst. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't heard about that one yet. Yeah, but... that was the one that just happened at the beginning. Or no, it happened during COVID. Remember, it just happened uh, a year or so ago. No. Well, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I just no, no, I, no, I no. It was the it was the biggest. Uh, I I forget the guy's name, but. Uh, I don't know if he was a, an but, artist. But it's usually a guy who feels disenchanted, yeah. who is mentally unwell, and with is, illegal weapons. Yeah, and is is not connected to a sense of community and not connected to people, and it, it's it's not like it. That is not something that gets halted by making it challenging to get guns for the everyday person. I feel like that's usually something that is tackled by focusing on the health of the community, focusing on the mental health of people, yeah. uh, creating less stigma around reaching out and trying to get help and and uh, better medications and approaches to dealing with illnesses and have reaching out to people, like yeah. community outreach. Yeah. You know, if somebody is sitting in their basement or in their room or whatever by themselves and feeling disconnected and depressed and they just start to feel resentment and hate for everybody but someone comes by and knocks on the door and just checks in on them from time to time versus not you know which one's more likely to end up shooting people yeah and not the wellness checks either because they they don't tend to end uh, (laughs) they they don't ironically enough yeah they don't they don't tend to end, end very well um no you're right and and that's you know Again, you can tie this back to Christianity, but the lack of of involvement from the church and the outreach programs. When you when you lose that, the government fills fills in, and the government programs. I mean, you know, you see the devastation inside of the way that government operates, right? Like it doesn't operate efficient efficiently. I had people contact me regarding um, uh, support for my campaign. Um, that were uh, looking to to seek my clar- clarification on my position with uh, government homes 
and uh, whether or not the the retirement home should be put into government uh, under government control. And I responded to the one lady. I said, "Well, well, look, my my wife works at a long term care facility, and you know, not everybody." has, has the same kind of, uh, compassion that my wife has. She's a very compassionate person, but, um, half of the place perhaps, uh, has a lot of compassion. Other people are just there for the job, but the house, uh, the, 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 um, the residence runs fairly well and they didn't have one outbreak through this whole thing. Um, yes, there's, there's issues there, but I mean, the majority of the outbreaks with COVID were in government controlled facilities. And now you want the government to come in and grab more and, and, and control that whole base. I don't, there has to be a happy medium, right? And, and like you said, you know, when you, when you lose those outreach programs and you lose the community involvement and that sense of community, um, and church out, outreach programs and stuff like that. The, the void that's that's created is is um, is usually filled by the government, right? And government programs that need there's an outcry from the population that says we need to do something, you know, Ble- bleeding hearts or whatever, you know, we we need to do something. And instead of empowering the people in the community, they say let's bring in more government programs, and it, it never ends well. It it really doesn't. I mean, give me one. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure I can be, be educated on, 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 I'm sure there's a, a government policy that's been successful, but I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. So. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not sure it's, it, 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 it tops the 50%. You know, I think most of them are failures. You, you know? feel very skeptic. Well, Skeptical. I think most of them are because they just by the very nature, they become bloated and, um, they, they lose control of pricing. They, they have no ability to control how much money goes into it. The, it becomes like a giant sinkhole, right? And it never becomes more efficient. I mean, just look at the difference between pro- private and public sector, right? Like it's, there's a stark contrast there in all aspects, right? With pensions and, and, and working conditions and wages. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's never been a secret that, government jobs are, you know, if you can get a government job, you know, <laughs> you're doing well, right? For a reason, because that's where the security blanket is. But that security blanket, as we discussed earlier, is not always, uh, not always a good, good, good place to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and we, yeah, we need to go back to those community outreach programs, I think. be. So which government institutions do you feel, um, uh could be replaced by community activism. Jeez. Do we, do you have a list of uh, yeah. all the government agencies? I think it'd be longer than this table. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's, what about our community? Glengarry Prescott, Russell, like what element of the community you feel is being taken care of by the government that could be taken care of by the community? Uh, to be straight out, I, I don't know. And I'm, and I'm looking to educate myself more. Once this campaign is done, my, my, uh, my focus is to hopefully, um, stay on as the, as the PPC candidate and, and to really start doing the, the, um, the work that should have been done before the campaign, but because of the, the nature of the way things were called and, and, and the crisis that, that we've been in, it's been impossible in the, in the snap election. But I would love to go door to door to community to community and, and talk with different organizations. Just in the small period of time that we've been in now with this election, I the outreach has been amazing. And the organizations that I've learned about 
has been fascinating. So I'm a little agnostic on that. I, I don't, I don't know all of the organizations that are in the community. Um, but, but I, but I plan to, and I plan to get more involved on that level. And, um, so that I have a stronger basis to, um, to come at, like I said, I'm, I'm new at this and I never really, uh, other than having a, you know, a, a coffee table discussion with buddies or over a beer or something like that about, you know, yipping about politics or something like that. I, I've never really, uh, delved into a lot of political, uh, aspects of, of life, especially in the community. So I, it, it's something that I need to do to mm-hmm. so that I can answer questions like that a little more uh, affirmatively and say you know okay there's this program that program that program we could we could you know the the church could come in and 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 do this or, or function in a better capacity or we could we could bring in um, student volunteers or you know like there, there there's you know there, there's solutions out there excuse me I don't have all the solutions um but I, I pride myself on being a person who, even though I'm doing a lot of talking now, <laughs> I like to listen to, uh, to people and people's ideas. And I think that everybody, um, I grew, I grew up, uh, playing a lot of, a lot of musical instruments and, uh, I, I'm a drummer. And one of the best things I learned from drumming and drumming teachers that I studied with was, was that you can sit down and you can watch a, a, a 10 year old who has never sat behind a drum kit and you can watch them pick up a set of sticks and smack a drum and move their body in a certain way and say, that was a very interesting technique. I never thought about doing that and it doesn't matter. And it's always stuck with me that you can, you can relate that to any aspect in life. So I always look at people and say, what can I learn from you? Or or what do you what do you bring to the table that can, that can change my mind or educate me about, about a certain area? So I don't, I don't have all the answers for sure, but there's definitely areas where I'm going to sit down and listen to people and say, I agree with that, or I don't agree with that, you know? So I know it was a vague answer, but, uh, no, but it's important to share how, like where you are in the process yeah, and, and how you're addressing where you are in that process. It's very important to like show your humility and to understand what you can and cannot do. Like that's very, very important when you're telling people that you want to represent them. Right. Right. On the, on the idea of government versus private, like it's very sexy. The idea of, Oh, private industry has the incentives to be efficient and effective and government just gets bloated and self-interested. And I feel like the, the flip side of that is government is humane and cares about people (laughs) and private industry is inhumane and cares only about profit. And there's plenty of examples on either end of the spectrum of governments getting bloated and being inefficient and then people suffering as a result of that. Yeah. And then corporations treating people inhumanely and a community suffering as a result of that because they're, they're just focusing yeah. on profit. No, for sure. For sure. A hundred percent. And there's got to be a balance, right? Mm-hmm. Where that balance is, I, I don't, again, I don't have all the answers, right? Mm-hmm. But there is a, there is a balance and. I think we've, we've, uh, we've got to a point where, you know, if you attempt to try something and you fail, you know, they're going to say, look, oh, especially in the, in the political realm, hey, look at, look at this guy. He wasn't up to the job. He couldn't handle it. But instead of saying, well, you know what, um, 
this policy didn't work. You'll never hear a politician say that. But this policy didn't work. We need to reverse course. We need to. The only politician I heard say that was the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, who, when I was living in Toronto, he was running to be the premier. And he put forth this idea that they were going to fund all schools, whether it be Jewish or Muslim. And he got huge backlash and he had to reverse course. And I think it's the only time in, in my life that I've ever seen a politician do a 180. And he was forced to backtrack on, on his policy. And publicly, he had to come out and say there was so much pushback against it that he had to come out and say, all right, we're not, we're not going to do it. Okay, that was a bad idea. But maybe there'd be more trust in government if, if the government did that. You know, Maybe if, if Trudeau stood up and said, you know what? I see the damage that's going on right now with inflation. I know we've had to spend. So you know, we want to hit our, our emission targets, but let's... Uh, let's just cancel the, the carbon tax right now and try to stabilize our prices while people are, are off of work and businesses are suffering and prices are going through the roof. Let's just try to stabilize something. But you, you don't see that. Or you, you never, ever see that, do you? Because it's like when you go to Ottawa or to Queen's Park or to the National Assembly, you, you, there's somehow the political institutions suck the humanity out of you. I, I, I don't know. It's It's... Maybe that's not the right the right way to phrase it, but it, it 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 does something to you that changes people, right? You can't go against the party line. You see what happens when you go against the party line. I mean, Pierre Lemieux was prevented from running for the Conservatives, and they had to fly in uh, um, Susan MacArthur, right, because his views on vaccine mandates, right? He went against the party line, um, and you know. Things like that, things like these omnibus, omnibus bills, omnibus, uh, omnibus, <laughs> omnibus bills. Yeah, yeah. sorry. No, it's a strange uh, word. Yeah, um, the the fact that you're you're cramming, you know, five, ten, fifteen different, you know, regulatory framework structures or or policies or you know, uh, agendas into these bills. I mean. That, that has to stop, you know, to have a, a 4,000, 5,000 page document, you know, to regulate something or to dole out money. I mean, it's, it's, it's asinine. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like y- you focus on one issue, we tackle the issue. It doesn't need to be more than, I don't know. I've, I, again, I've never done this, so I don't know, maybe a hundred pages. I'm not sure, but it doesn't need to be as complicated as it is. And I think that's the problem that, you know, you, you lose your ability as an individual to stand up for your constituents. Uh, you can't go against the party line. You can't, um, you can't interfere in that political process or somehow you're, you're deemed a troublemaker and you're pushed to the side. But now you see the rise in this party and, it, and well, you see not just here, but around the world, the rise in populism, right? And, um, there's a reason for that, right? Because people want to be represented by people. Yep. And, and I think that that's an important stepping stone to regaining confidence in, in a government structure. So there's a couple things that came up when you were talking about uh, reversing position. I, uh, I remember Trudeau originally wanted, um, wanted to push for proportional representation yeah, for electoral and, and then changed, yeah. changed his approach on that. Um, Cause it doesn't favor him. 
Well, his his argument. Do, do you want some more water, by the way? No, no, no. Okay, no, okay. No, I, yeah, okay. I gotta go to the washroom. Okay. Actually, <laughs> do you want to pause? So you can can go? we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you mind? Not a problem. Yeah. Not a problem. All right. Sorry. That's all right. I drank a bottle before I left. Oh, okay. So, yes, uh, Trudeau reversed his position on proportional representation, and you were saying that because it's in his favor. And to like give some benefit of the doubt, I think anytime anybody changes their position on anything, it's hopefully in their favor. Uh, just like the mayor of Toronto changed his position because it was in his favor for his, to get the, the appeal of his constituents. Unless you have integrity. Unless you have integrity, right? Because if you if you believe in something, and you believe in it so heart so wholeheartedly, that you know, that's that's your position, then then you shouldn't wane from it. So as John Tory's uh, position goes, if he believed so heartedly that it was, you know, advantageous and and beneficial for the population to fund all schools, then it you know you're going to get pushback but maybe he should have gone ahead and said no look at this is what i believe and uh you know whether or not we implement the policy is one thing but to stand on your on your integrity and say look this is what i put forth because this is what i believe and i'm going to stand by that if the will of the people is that they don't want that then so be it I, I won't force it on the people if they don't want it, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to turn tail on my belief system. I still believe we should do it, right? But you have to have integrity and you have to say, if there's enough of, uh, uh, of an uprise, you know, with the people, because it's supposed to be representation by the people, right? Um, then there, and that's what we lack is the integrity, right? There's, it's like when you go there, like I said, you lose your humanity, whatever it is that you lose, but integrity is definitely lost. There are a few politicians that, that maintain their integrity and fight for their, their constituents. I, I, I firmly believe that, but the system on the, on the whole, it, it does something to you. And I don't know what it is because I've never been there, but it seems that a lot of people change. And, uh, a, a lot of people, uh, lose their integrity and, um, I'm not, I, I, I don't think that that's a position that I would be willing to take. I don't think I would be willing to stay in a position, uh, where I couldn't look myself in the mirror at night and say, are you, are you, is, is this policy going to hurt somebody? And if I don't speak out about it, you know, like parliamentary privilege, you know, like something like that should be absolutely gotten rid of. You know, if, if you do something when you're in elected office that affects a population, then when you come out of office, um, if it's warranted, then you should be held criminally responsible. hundred percent. You know, there should be no hiding behind anything. If you, if you, um, uh, well, I mean, just look at the countless scandals that, that uh, Trudeau has been involved with. Right. And he hasn't even had a, an, an RCMP or a mild RCMP investigation, I guess, but it was more focused on SNC Lavalin, you know, but I mean, 
how can you listen to somebody or have respect for somebody when they're telling you, you know, everybody needs to be a feminist, but you know, and, and, and everybody needs to, um, to feel bad for, for what happened with, with, with the, the residential schools and, and, and our native, uh, the, the situation with our native reserves and, and, and the treatment of the, of the native people, yet you turn around and you act the way you did with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, you know, like the, he, he, there's, there's, there's words and there's actions, right? And, you know, you don't have to look very far inside a person and, and what they're saying and what they're doing, if they're two different things, then uh, I'm sure a logical conclusion is that those actions are, are who that person is, right? Not the words. And too often we're, we're lulled and, and nullified by the words that, that politicians use or, or actors or whoever, right? It's easy to manipulate a message, you know, through your words and not your actions, right? And what actions do you feel resonate with you that Maxime has, has taken part in? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I know there's a, a, a history with Max. Um, I don't know all the positions on Max's history, but I know that um, as far back as I have been turned on to Max and, and, and his movement, his message has been consistent. So I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt until I see something that um, tells me to the contrary. You know, um, I'll, uh, I'll take his, his, his position. I'll take his word, you know, and, um, and we'll, we'll run with that. And, and, and if, uh, depending on what happens, the outcome of this election, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see where Max's position is and, and what he continues to do. But so far, you know, his, his message has been consistent and he's, he's traveling the country and he's, he's fighting for, um, for, for the, the people who, you know, want to see uh, a return to normal and, and for our country to be, uh, um, not so inundated with this, this state of fear and just, you know, like, uh, I guess trying to get a message out to people that, that, you know, we can live with this virus and, and that we don't need to have this constant bombardment of fear by the media and just, yeah, I guess that's, you know, we'll have to see until he gives me mm. something to, 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 to question then I'll, uh, you know. I'll reserve my judgment at that point, but right now, I mean, he's, he's been steadfast to his words. So, uh, like I said, I know, you know, when you, if you listen to people like Chris Sky, you know, I know he, he talks a lot about when, uh, when Maxim was, uh, was a part of Harper's, um, uh, cabinet that, uh, he worked with, uh, George Soros and some of the, uh, some of, uh, the international societies that may be, uh, may have nefarious agendas, you know, with, uh, with through their organizations and funneling of money and stuff like that. And I mean, maybe that was the case, but I, again, I allude back to the, um, to the, to the previous conversation that, you know, when you're in that government bureaucracy, you're a part of that system, right? And it's very hard to break out of that party line. So, I mean, if Max had a spoke out about that party line, you know, back then he would have probably been removed as well. Right. So, I mean, but, but then it does question the integrity too, right? Where do you stand? So, um, we'll, we'll have to see, but, uh, as it stands right now, um, I, I believe he's an honest man. I believe he's, he's a guy of integrity and I believe he, um, he means what he says. 
and I think he's he's fighting for for the people of this country, and I think he deserves a sh- uh, a chance to to show the country what he can do. You know, mm-hmm. your comment about the media piqued something in me in regards to the weird position we are in with the pandemic. Because if I think about you know media institutions, they get a lot of attention and get a lot of money as a result yeah. in doing outrage. Yeah, and that's not. That's not old news. You no, know, it's, it's not old news, which is funny when you see people reacting the way that, that they are when you call it fake news and they say, oh, no, 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 it's not fake news. It's not. Well, it's been fake news for years, decades, right? It's been it's been fear porn for, for generations, <laughs> right? Like it, literally, I mean. Yes, fear you know, porn is not new. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's not new no. at all. It's, it's, it's been the, the, the crux that has sold many books, many, mm-hmm. many uh, movies, many, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's all about that, that thrill and that adrenaline rush, right? And then on the flip side, hope porn, if I think about what represents that, I would, I'd think of sports. I would think of music. I would think of, uh, you don't think of politics and media. Gathering. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Right. No, like sure. There's political gatherings that can be hope porn, yeah. Yeah. but that's not, that's not constant. That's not like a community thing. That's not something that you build your culture around or no. do like, that's a once in a while thing. Right. It, but it's funny because there are countries that do mobilize around that. Like if you look at Sweden, like Sweden is a, is a country, you know, um, people will often say, well, I prefer the, the Scandinavian method of, of, uh, of society, you know, a, a socialistic and, you know, but you listen to the Scandinavian countries, they're, they're not socialistic. They have, they have socialistic aspects about them. I'm a very pro American guy. I really got into the con- sorry. No, sorry. I, I really got into the constitution this year and, and studying about the, the, the history, the founding of the States, the, the declaration of independence, um, I started taking courses through Hillsdale College. Uh, it's a university in northern Michigan. It's a Christian university. And they offer online uh, programs. So you can do the programs for free. You get a certificate. You don't get a degree. But, I mean, you could go to the university and get a degree. But um, very, very worthwhile. I mean, to put this education out for free is, I mean, you're gathering a lot of information. There's a lot of knowledge here. So it's a really cool resource tool. Um, but... Um, there, there are societies that, that uh, um, America being the exception because they don't like socialism whatsoever, right? But there are societies and even Canada where I, I do think it's appropriate to have a balance, right? You know, but I, I try to correct people, like especially my kids when they say to me, oh, dad, well, you know, the Americans, they don't have free health care, but we do. But I said, whoa, 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 you see how much money comes off my paycheck. There's, there's nothing that's free, right? We, we pay for it. It's not... You know, it may be doled out through the through the government structure, and they call that socialism or whatever. But that's it's it's it is far from free. It costs a lot of money. So if you're looking to the Scandinavian model to say that you know they treat their people better because the government structure has more integrity, right? And they have more respect for their citizens. They didn't lock their citizens down. They didn't force their businesses uh, out of business. They didn't tell their citizens that you're, you can be essential and, 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 and you, you know, another person can't, I mean, they didn't do that. They, they showed the utmost respect for their society and they made it through, you know, about the same as everybody else, you know? So again, it, to me, it boils down to integrity, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, did I get off topic on that one? No, no, no that's right. That's a, no, it, I, have a, I have a tendency to divert once I get talking and, uh, you know, another idea pops in. So and you the, feel the PPC is the, is the party that has the most integrity that resonates with you? 
I feel it's the party that stems from um, the closest proximity to the people. Whether or not everybody in the in that party will have integrity, I, I don't know. I can't account for everybody else. I can tell you where I come from. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I'm not a sellout. I know where my integrity stands, you know, and that's all I have, right? Um, it's all I have with my kids. You know, if they can't look to me and say, you know, my dad was an honorable man, then what do I have, right? I've got nothing. So um, maybe maybe the majority of the party is, maybe your odd person isn't, um, that remains to be seen. Um, but, uh, it's definitely the party that's resonating most with the public right now. And I think, um, that you're going to see that this election, I think it's going to be a big wake up call the same that the same way that, uh, the Trump presidency was in 2016. I'm not saying Maxim is going to be prime minister, Or, or anything like that. But what I'm saying is that um, they're discarding us. They're pushing us to the side. They're putting us in a, you know, a category of other, you know, before it was, the pressure was great enough to, to force them to, to say, okay, well now we'll, we'll call them the PPC and show them that they're, they're polling at, you know, some polls had us at like 0.9%. And I think the first round they got, um, it was like 1.7% of the, the pop, the, the, the vote. Um, don't quote me on that, but it was around there. Um, what what has been said or done to make you feel like you're the other? Oh, just everything that's in the mainstream. The fact that that you know, you're. I don't think it's it's unreasonable to say you know some polls show us at ten twelve percent, some show us at three four percent, five percent, eight percent. Regardless of what poll you look at, um, we're rivaling the block. And if there's a separatist party allowed to speak at a debate, then in a democratic society, there's there's no reason that Max shouldn't have been allowed to to participate. None whatsoever, you know. And I know that there was even individual candidates I'd heard through some of our uh, Slack chat um, internal uh, party communications that there were parties, uh, individual candidates that were being denied. Uh, I was invited. Um, I didn't partake in any debates. Um, I'm not engaging in any social. I know some of the other candidates have, uh, there's been a little back and forth. I, I saw it briefly, but I don't even troll them. I don't, I don't follow them. I, I, I followed, uh, Susan MacArthur, but, um, I'm not, I'm not like avidly looking at them to see what they're doing. That's the, my, my interest in this is seeing what's affecting the people. And, uh, I'm trying to get out and, and, uh, just make myself known that to, to, to people that I'm not a politician. And if you give me a shot, you're going to elect somebody who's honorable and I will do everything I can to fight, um, for these communities, right? Canadians of all stripe. I, I won't, I won't discriminate against anybody, but, uh, you know, um, I'm here representing this riding, but I mean, I have friends across the country and I'll, I'll fight for this country as a whole. Cause I believe in it. So, and what are the things that you feel are worth fighting for? I'm, I'm a strong Patriot. So I I like the idea of, of, uh, Canada as a country. I'm fascinated by the separatist movement at work because I work in Montreal. I'm always talking to, um, 
to separatists about uh, their ideology, their ideological stance, because there's a lot of relevance between that and, and being a patriotic Canadian, right? Just only in a, in a smaller microcosm, right? So they're, they're isolating themselves to Quebec, but if you use that energy and you focused on the country, we'd have, we'd have a fantastic country, especially the way that you look at the French language and how it was, um, how the French language was, uh, has been so divisive. Um, and the way that the government felt they needed to bring in bill 101 to regulate and, and what I've seen it, the effects of, of, of that in my short time here working in Quebec is that it's, it's isolated a portion of the Quebec community to just speaking French when you're supposed to be dealing on an international level, right? So if you want to do business and you can only speak French, well, you're really limited, right? You kind of keep, when you look at all the elites though, especially the elites that govern Quebec, a lot of them send their kids to English school, right? Or a lot of them were trained in English, right? Because they need to be able to communicate. They understand the importance. And I would have taken a more broad spectrum approach maybe to work with the country on a whole and all the provinces and, and tried to focus on how we could have implemented a national uh, bilingual program throughout the school systems from, from coast to coast, instead of pinning one province against every other province, you know, based on the idealism of, 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 of language and somehow that, that it made us different, you know, when instead we could have embraced it and said, Hey, wouldn't it be awesome if we all could be bilingual and not everybody's going to be bilingual cause it's hard, but, um, I've struggled with it personally, but I love the language and I try, I make an ass of myself, but I try, <laughs> I try all the time. You know, I have guys that are like, Oh, Brennan, why don't you uh, speak more French? And I'm like, cause when I speak French, you're always saying, I just say it in English cause you suck. <laughs> so it's uh, no, but I mean, in, do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like absolutely. Absolutely. Be proactive and be like, why, why is it always that humanity has to, it always has to go to the negative. It always has to go to the control factor. It always mm -hmm. has to go to that, that area where, no, we're going to restrict you instead of saying, ah, why don't, why don't we broaden this out across the country? And why don't we open up the rest of Canada to understanding the, the importance of speaking, not just one language, but two and three languages, right? Well, it's an innate defense mechanism. Tribalism, right? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's just conservation of energy, attention, yeah. security, risk, like just suck everything and bring everything in, shut it all down. It's like, even if you look at your own body, right? Like if you True. injure a limb, yeah. your body's natural yeah, reaction is just yeah. take blood away from the limbs and right. bring it to the core and just protect the heart and the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So and are you saying the heart and the brain is Quebec? Well, it's <laughs> I hope their not. language. Their yeah. language is so, the heart and yeah. the brain of their identity. Yeah. Right. So when they feel threatened and they feel like they're, they're losing their sense of identity, all their attention is going to shunt towards their language. Cause it's like, I, and then you can take that energy and direct it in the wrong way. Right. Mm -hmm. If you get a leader who is divisive and, and you know, it, it really shows where someone's care and compassion and focus is when you're trying to further isolate people or, 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 create a division like the you, you listen to the language that Trudeau uses on this about about anti-vaxxers well I'll tell you something you know it's absolute hogwash because there's a lot of nurses that are fully vaccinated that just don't want to take the COVID vaccine right 
that are, that are protesting this, you know? So for you to generalize and call everybody an anti-vaxxer is absolute lunacy to say that they're all right-wing ideologues or, or extremists is, is, is nuts. There's women and there's children and there's minorities and there's elderly. They're Canadian too. Exactly. And they're all fighting for their right to choose. Not, not the right to not be vaccinated, you know, not, not to be called an anti-vaxxer by the, by their prime minister, but to be in a position where they say, you know what? All right. The polio vaccine was, uh, you know, was a necessary, uh, uh, medical intervention and, uh, the, you know, rubella and whatever, you know, some of the traditional vaccines, but, uh, I don't feel that this one is right for me. So, you know, where, where does the government get off? telling you that you have to shove something in your, in your veins, or you're not going to be allowed into a public space. Like that is a gross overreach. And it, to me, it's, it's despicable. It's really, uh, but, but the same, the same issue can be extrapolated onto the language issue or, or anything, right? It's all about control and, and more control and consolidating control and, you know, retaining power and, you know, power over the people. And I just, I just don't like it. I'm uh, not a fan of it at all. <laughs> it's, it's been very confusing the whole conversation around COVID and the vaccines and the possible solutions. Cause I always wonder why, <laughs> what's the benefit to dividing people? You know, like we started this whole thing with the idea of uh, we're in this together. And <laughs> it, it, isn't that weird, eh? It's so, so weird. Right? The, so the, the, the rainbow in the windows, you know, so it'll be okay. And, you know, well, it's okay for some people, but it's not mm. okay for everybody, right? What about the people that are suffering yeah. from mental health issues? Uh, yeah, and, there's you know? like the list is long. Obviously, it's, very it's long. so long. It's longer it's than so the damage long. from COVID, right? It's, it, there's, we don't even really have a full no, understanding at all. We won't for years and years and years. Right. But ultimately, any crisis is an opportunity for people to come together and to have a bonding experience. And there was like that seed in the beginning of we're all in this together. But the the hope that was focused on was something that ended up dividing people. The hope was you can only be safe when we say you're safe. Yeah. And we say you're safe when you've had a vaccine is one example there's not, but it won't, it won't end with that. Right. Like it's, it's one vaccine, but now it's, we know the efficacy of that. Those vaccines has waned and they're saying six months, mm -hmm. you know, so for two shots, you're having a, you know, a, a six months worth of immunity and then, it, and then it wanes and now you need a booster. And now they're saying you're going to need two or three or four boosters a year for the next several years. And people are going to be, yeah, I don't think so. Well, what happened to having an immune system, right? What happened to the conversation about, well, you can't talk about vitamin D or vitamin C or anything that's been traditionally used to, to boost immunity, right? Whole foods, good eating, you know, everything that's good for the body has been shut down and everything that um, is counterintuitive to the biology of the body or the, the, the mental state of people has been promoted right? Staying home. You know, you know that most of the transmissions happened indoors. So why are you shutting people indoors? Right? Especially in the summer, get people outside, right? Why are you closing gyms? You know, instead of mandating vaccines, why aren't we saying we're going to get a vaccine passport for you and you have to go to the gym four days a week because everybody's a burden on the healthcare system, 
right? Oh, you're smoking. Where, where does this, where does it end? You know, you're, you're a smoker. Like I got a guy at work. Great guy. It's been working out for 30 years. Great shape. He's like, why do I have to wear a mask? And these guys are worried about me spreading something to them, but they're running out and smoking four or five cigarettes while they're at work, but they're smoking a pack a day. You know, their immune systems are on life support and, and you're yelling at me to put a mask on to protect you. You know, you're going to the vending machine every day, drinking a bottle of pop. So why don't we start regulating this? Like, you know, if it was really about health, right? I mean, and this is what I don't understand. A lot of people, are they ignoring it? Are they not choosing to look at this? I mean, a lot of people that are scared are, are people that are, are, you know, their life's their, their, their immune systems are, are, uh, are, are heavily strained, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's no, it's no secret that we've got an unhealthy lifestyle, right? There's not enough exercise. There's too much processed food. There's too much, um, um, high sodium diets. There's too much, not even sugar, but refined high fructose corn syrup sugars, which have just a numerous effects on, on the biology, uh, you know, of the body, right. Uh, chemically speaking. So, you know, but follow the trail of money here and we go all the way back to the pharmaceuticals, right. So, and the profits and the, you know, so I, yeah, I have a problem. I have a problem. i I could give benefit of the doubt in regards to why the hyper-focus on masks, why the hyper-focus on vaccines. And if if you're in a high position of authority and everyone's looking at you to create answers that can scale, these are pretty scalable answers. They're pretty consistent. There's a lot of control over them. Like you're doing testing on them. When it comes to vitamins, nutrition, and exercise, which I totally support, mm -hmm. I think doing everything you can possibly do to bolster your sense of immunity and just physical health, mental health, the whole thing is good. But it's not not as easy as a conversation of put this thing on, put this thing in your body. Like, well, as, it's a, it's a it's a reaction, it's a reaction based society, right? So maybe society's always looking for the quick fix. You know, you got a migraine, you know, you take a a couple of liquid gel caps, and and your migraine's gone within a half an hour. But the underlying effect of why you're having migraines you know, could be A, B, C, or D. So if you started to mitigate your diet, you started to supplement, maybe you can curve those headaches from, you know, 20 times a year down to like two or three bad times a year. You know what I mean? But we want that quick fix, you know? And the problem with pharmaceuticals is that they don't address the root of the problem. They, 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 they band-aid the symptoms. All pharmaceuticals band-aid the symptoms, right? There's really, I mean, maybe with the exception of chemotherapy, which just destroys everything, you know, or even antibiotics. I mean, they're not, they're not, they don't discriminate, do they? They go in, they, they wipe out everything, you know, that's why they're effective, right? But if you don't replace the, the good bacteria after you take antibiotics or, you know, the, the, the gut flora that, that's wiped out, you know, you're weakening your system, right? Then there's lots and lots of evidence. And these, these, these remedies have been used for years. I mean, I, I think it's, I think we're way past the point of, of arguing semantics when it comes to um, uh, health and nutrition. And I can't believe that we're actually existing in a time where we have advanced so far with our understanding of, of how the body works and how the body can regenerate. If you give the body what it needs, the basic building blocks, the amino acids, the proteins, the, um, the, the, the enzymes, the, the, the flora, 
you know, to, to build and sustain the body than disease. All these words would have been confusing for my grandfather. He would have just looked at me like, what language are you speaking? Yes, but they, but they ate food, right? That mm. we call organic food, but they ate canned food. So they had canned uh, beets and, and, and pickles. So they had things that were naturally promoting their flora, right? Now, maybe they're, they're, the, the the time in history was harder on them, right? They worked the fields. They, you know, it was rougher on the body. There mm. were there was they didn't have the amenities of electricity and heat, and you could come yeah. in and relax by the fire, you know, and quick meals and stuff like that. But, um, but they ate better, right? Mm. They had they had better lifestyles. And look at our grandparents. I mean, they were all relatively fit and and they lived. A lot of them lived very well. It was one of the longest generations. Well, they're the, this generation is is not expected to outlive, you know, the previous generation, right? Mm. So the trend is now reversed, right? So what does that say again? Going back to the beginning of our conversation about you know the demise of society and is are things getting better or worse? Well, now if you're looking at all the trends and the trends are are now all trending downwards and in almost every aspect, that that should be a good indicator that that we're not on the right path, right? And and people need to be open to to change, but not for the sake of change, not just because we want to change, but what, what change is actually beneficial for our society? Is it putting cell phones in the hands of, of our young kids? You know, my, uh, my middle boy, he's 15. Um, he had, uh, he's got some, some reading issues and, uh, he struggled with, with, with speech and whatnot. And, um, Back when, when I was in school in the, the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, they, they had TAs that would, would take you aside, you know, and, and they would read with you or you, you know, there was, there was assistance there, right? Which is what you would expect from our, our government structure, you know, to provide the, the assistance that we're paying for through our taxes today, right? To, to keep up with the standards of the school, the school would just give them a laptop or, a, or a, a tablet that would read to him instead of getting him to read. So you're, you're band-aiding the solution again. You know, you're not, you're not creating um, a solution to the problem that exists. You're just, everything that we're doing today in society is just stick a band-aid on it, stick a band-aid on it, stick a band-aid on it, you know? And eventually you're going you're gonna to be left with so many scars when you rip all those band-aids off, you're not going to recognize what we have. You know, it's going to be completely transformed and, and that scares me, you know, because I value what we have. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Awesome. That you value what we have. Awesome. And I, I value the time that we shared. Yes, for sure. And thank you so much for sharing everything that you have shared. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And I hope that people get to know you a bit better as a result of this conversation. I hope so too. <laughs> If you wish to hear the rest of this interview, or others like it, please visit cjroradio.com and click on the podcast link to listen. Or, you can contact us to schedule an interview of your own. Thank you for listening.